A very good morning to you all. Thank you so much for joining us. If you're a guest or a first-time visitor here at uh, Dundonald Elam, thank you for taking the time to be here. Or if you're joining us online, we're really grateful. In whichever capacity you are encountering us, um, we are, welcome you. Would you turn, please, in your Bibles to Acts chapter 5, where we're going to read from verses 17 to 42. My name is Malcolm Duncan, for those of you that don't know me, and I have the honor of leading the team here as we lead the church. Acts chapter 5, verse 17. It's a long reading, so uh, if you have a Bible, make sure you can see it. If you don't have one, snuggle up to someone, it may be your opportunity. (laughs) As we read from verse 17 to verse 42 together. Then the high priest took action, he and all who were with him, that is the sect of the Sadducees, being filled with jealousy, arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors, brought them out and said, go stand in the temple and tell the people the whole message about this life. When they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and went on with their teaching. When the high priest and those with him arrived, they called together the council and the whole body of the elders of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the temple police went there, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guard standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were perplexed about them, wondering what might be going on. Then someone arrived and announced, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain went with the temple police and brought them, but without violence, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. When they had brought them, they had them stand before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We give you strict orders not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you are determined to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than any human authority. The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior so that he might give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up and ordered the men to be put outside for a short time. Then he said to them, fellow Israelites, consider carefully what you propose to do to these men. For some time ago, Theodos rose up claiming to be somebody and a number of men, about 400, joined him. But he was killed and all who followed him were dispersed and disappeared. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up at the time of the census and got people to follow him. He also perished and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. Because if this plan or this undertaking is of human origin, it will fail. 
But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. In that case, you may even be found fighting against God. They were convinced by him, and when they had called in the apostles, they had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. As they left the council, they rejoiced that they were considered worthy to suffer dishonor for the sake of the name. And every day in the temple and at home, they did not cease to teach and proclaim Jesus as the Messiah. Amen. God always blesses the public reading of his inspired and his infallible word. On Saturday the 23rd of February this year, Olawule Elisanmi, a Christian street preacher and a dentist, was arrested outside Southgate Station in London for breaching the peace. The police have said that they were called by a member of the public who complained that the preacher was being Islamophobic as he shared the gospel with passers-by. The video of what he was saying went viral and the arrest caused outrage, not just in the United Kingdom, but across the world. If you want to make a stand for the freedom of Christ and for the freedom of Christian street preachers to preach in the streets of the United Kingdom, then this story matters. It began when Ambrosini Shitrit, a Jewish campaigner from Campaign for Truth and Eye on Antisemitism, was driving past Southgate tube station on that Saturday. She saw a tall hooded man squaring up to a small elderly black street preacher. She quickly pulled over, jumped out, and she started to film on her telephone. She said in her report, I thought he was about to be assaulted. The preacher was fearless. But if I hadn't started filming, he would have been attacked. The preacher was not breaching the peace, and in no way had he been Islamophobic. Ambrosine encouraged the gentleman who was arguing with him to debate with the preacher rather than to threaten him. But both men then expressed their views to each other and they robustly criticized each other's religion. Ambrosine mediated and pointed out that um, Muslims also evangelize across London without being threatened or without being silenced. Two police officers arrived in response to a 999 call claiming that the preacher had been Islamophobic. The gentleman who was the Muslim left the vicinity immediately and the police began asking the preacher to leave the area for supposedly breaching the peace. For eight years, Olawule has been preaching in Southgate and elsewhere in Greater London. He has been arrested before but said that the way he was treated this time was particularly painful for him. Olawule has explained to um, a number of organisations that are helping him what happened after the arrest. He claims that he was put into the back of a police car and it was, his Bible was thrown into the boot of the vehicle. Still cuffed and still in pain, he was taken a short distance to Southgate Police Station. He wasn't brought into the station, but instead was taken out of the car and searched. They found nothing, but as he said he didn't want to go home, the police officers then drove him to an unfamiliar location miles away from home without telling him where he was and de-arrested him. That means they let him go. He was left there with no money for the bus and no way of getting home. A member of the public gave him the money that he needed, so he got back on a bus, went back to Southgate Tube Station, opened his Bible and started to preach again. He adds that the only caution he got that day was from his wife. After he arrived home and he told her what had happened. 
It is not illegal to preach the gospel on the streets of the United Kingdom. And it is not illegal to preach the gospel in public. Now, you might be a person that says we shouldn't do it because it's aggressive or angry. Well, that depends on the preacher, I guess. But it is not illegal. Nor is it illegal in the European Union to do so. But how do we respond when the community tries to silence us if we feel we have a message that we want to share with them? That's the story of Acts chapter 5 and the story of the dentist who was the, preach, speak, the, the uh, street preacher in Southwark. Here's the section of Acts 5 that we've read in bullet points for you. The apostles have been arrested because of the miracles that have taken place and what has been happening in Jerusalem. They're put in prison, but they are miraculously released by an angel and told to go back to the temple and to continue their preaching the following day, which they do. The council then called for the apostles, the council which is the, the leading Jewish council, I'll talk about that in a moment, called for the apostles to be brought from prison to appear before them. And they discover that the apostles aren't in prison after all. The doors are not broken, the guards have not abandoned their posts, but the apostles are not there. Then they are told that the apostles are, in the words of verse 25, standing in the temple and teaching the people. So they're arrested again and they are brought before the council. The high priest questions them about their actions and criticizes them for, I quote verse 28, filling Jerusalem with your teaching. Peter and the apostles refuse to stop speaking of God when they are told that they have to, saying that they will put God and what he has told them above what anybody else tells them. The council reacts badly and it wants to kill them. It wants to arrest them. But Gamaliel intervenes, warning them to take their time and to see how the matter pans out. Because if it is of God, it will thrive. And if it is not, it will fail. The council responds by agreeing and calls the apostles in and has them flogged. And tells them again not to speak in the name of Jesus. The apostles leave and continue to speak in the name of Jesus. They get on the bus, go back to Southgate and pick up where they left off. And we are told in verse 41, they rejoiced that they were considered worthy to suffer dishonor for the, name of the, for the sake of the name. Verse 42, the end of the passage reads like this, and every day in the temple and at home, literally every day and from house to house, they did not cease to teach and proclaim Jesus as the Messiah. Over the last couple of Sunday mornings, the 3rd and the 10th, we took a break last week because we had a, a wonderful dedication. We've been exploring Acts chapter 5. What happens when God is on the move in his church? And on the 3rd of March, we explored sin being exposed in the story of Ananias and Sapphira. On the 10th of March, uh, Pastor Tyler helped us to explore signs and wonders and growth as we looked at verses 12 to 16. This morning, I want to take a little while to talk to you about what happens at the end of Acts chapter 5, the story of opposition and how the church responds to it. It's not the same as the other stories that we've read so far in Acts, but it has particularly important lessons to teach you and I if we are followers of Jesus. God was on the move in the book of Acts. People were being healed. Opposition was rising. People were becoming Christians. There was a rumor around the place that God was at work without it sounding arrogant, presumptuous, or self-vaunting, God is on the move in Dundonald Elam. 
People are being saved. People are being healed. And opposition is rising. We are seeing some of the things that you see in this passage happening here in our lives together as a community. So what has Acts chapter 5 verses 17 through to 42 got to say to you today as a follower of Jesus, if you are one, or if you're exploring faith, what might it say to you? I have a few things I want to highlight. This passage could take days, weeks, months to dig into. So forgive me if we only skim across the surface like a stone thrown at Crawford's burn. Here's the first thing I think that we should observe as we learn from this story of opposition. When God moves in his people, the religious elite and those who consider themselves guardians often move against it. It's ever been thus here in this story. It is exactly what happens. Look at the text for a moment. Verse 17 tells us that after the miracles have taken place, after it's been noised abroad that God is moving through this small community in Jerusalem, then we read in verse 17, then the high priest takes action. He and all who were with him, that is the sect of the Sadducees, being filled with jealousy. The religious elite are rising because there's something popular happening and they don't like it. They want to stop it. They want to squash it. The high priest um, believes that he has something that he has to do. There are three things in that little verse that you will see when God is on the move somewhere, happening again and again. Number one, a wrong understanding and a wrong use of power. The high priest and those that are with him think that they are guardians of God. We'll come back to that in a moment not guardians of the galaxy, and that they have a responsibility to stop this movement. They're acting out of good intentions. They think Yahweh, the Jewish God, wants them to do that. Of course, he doesn't. They have a wrong understanding of their power. They think that because they are a high priest in the Jewish leading council called the Sanhedrin, that they get to decide what God does in Jerusalem. But nobody gets to decide what God does in Jerusalem apart from God. The same is true today. We also see, and don't take this the wrong way, but we also see sectarianism. If you read the text verse, carefully in verse 17, the word is there. There's a group here called Sadducees. My Latin teacher when I went to school was called Inst. I was called Inst was called Jed. And um, he also taught us a little bit of religious studies. And if you got something wrong, nothing to do with the sermon, it's just interesting. If you got something wrong, he'd come down, oh, what's on your hair, Tyler? Hairspray. There's a bit of bucket of it on there. So. Not quite as bad as Louis Hennings. Go and feel his head after the sermon. Um, but he used to put his hand in your head and with his finger, play God save the queen on your ear. It was very sore. I only hit you twice. But he used to say this to us when he was teaching us divinity. The Sadducees were very sad, you see, because they did not believe in any form of afterlife. Whereas the Pharisees believed in some form of afterlife. Jewish religion and tradition at the time of Second Temple Judaism, when Jesus was alive and physically on earth, was wrecked by sectarianism. There were factions fighting for power. There were a number. There were the Sadducees and the Pharisees. 
The Pharisees felt it was their job to guard the law, that every line of it, every dot on the I and stroke on the T in, in Hebrew language equivalent had to be guarded by them. It was their job. And that if anybody deviated in a millimeter away from it, they had to keep it true. That was driven not by legalism. It was driven by deep reverence and respect for God. It ended up legalistic, but that's not where it started. And they had strong beliefs about the resurrection. They had strong beliefs about the Torah. They had strong beliefs about Jewish customs and traditions. They had a way of doing things around there that you didn't break. The Sadducees had another way of doing things and they clashed. There were different ways of understanding how to read the Torah and the Jewish scriptures. There was a group called the Hillel School of Rabbis and there was a group called the Shammai School of Rabbis. The Shammai wanted to be more like Moses. The Hillel were more like the Pharisees. The Hillel ended up saying that a man could divorce his wife for any reason. All he had to do was stand in public and say um, in a loud voice so that people could hear him three times, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. Not at all what Moses teaches. Not at all what the Old Testament teaches about divorce. Not in any way does it teach that. But Hillel were becoming more and more legalistic and controlling and domineering. Whereas the Shammai school were saying, one day in the next couple of years, I'll tell you why that's such an important thing. Because the teaching of Jesus on divorce is remarkably different to what many evangelicals have labeled it. Because we have cast aside people who are divorcees, telling them that they have no place or that they've committed the unpardonable sin when they divorce or remarry. You will be surprised to know that I believe that the scripture teaches very clearly that people can divorce in certain circumstances and are free to remarry. The sectarianism of the um, time in which Jesus was alive wasn't anything like the sectarianism of Northern Ireland. That's not the point I'm trying to make. But they were divided at the root because they were clashing in their culture. One culture always had to be dominant. They didn't know how to live together. And as a result, there was always this clash about who was in power and who was in control and who was popular and what was happening. That's the backdrop of this attack on this sect in Jerusalem that Jesus had founded. And there was jealousy. The only clear reason that we are given in verse 17 for this attack is jealousy. They were jealous. They were jealous of what was happening. They were jealous of miracles. They were jealous of what they were seeing in this emerging community. They were jealous. Those are still the things that will drive opposition to God being on the move. Jealousy. They're getting more people. Jealousy. They're getting people saved. Jealousy. People are being healed. Why isn't that happening here? Instead of rejoicing together that God is doing that in the body, we attack one another. We criticize one another. We undermine one another. We become jealous of one another. I don't care one iota where God moves in Belfast. I just want him to move in Belfast, amen? I don't care where he moves in Ireland. I just want to see Ireland one for Christ. The high priest and the leading council find that difficult. In verse 21, we're told that they have the apostles brought in. They are brought in before them to face questions. In verse 27, after they've, been um, after they've been brought in, they stand before the council and the high priest questions them. 
Then the interchange happens about the Peter and the apostles saying, we will obey God, they're released, and all of those other things happen. In verse 39, when they decide what they're going to do, we read this, they were convinced by Gamaliel that they shouldn't, um, that they shouldn't attack the apostles. So they call them in again and they have them flogged. Then they wonder, then they command them not to speak in the name of Jesus and they let them go. Again and again, when God's people are experiencing something of life, the religious elite stand against it. They do it here and they do it in every generation. I want you to note a couple of things. One of the things that is obvious from the text, if you compare it to other parts of the gospel, is what Luke is doing here. And he is demonstrating that the way Jesus is treated in his trial is exactly the same way as the apostles are being treated in this trial. Compare any of the narratives in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John about how Jesus stands before the high priest, how he is commanded not to speak, how he is flogged and mocked, and then compare this, and you'll see that the same thing is happening again. Because Luke is making the point that the way they treated Jesus, they will treat you. Because it's the way they treated the leaders of the early church. Jesus said that himself in the Sermon on the Mount. If you read back through the history of the church, brothers and sisters, not Dundonald Elam Church, the Church of Jesus Christ, you will see that every time there has been a move of God in revival or awakening, those in power have found it difficult to accept. The religious awakening of 1859 here in Northern Ireland, it wasn't Northern Ireland then, here in Northern Ireland was criticized by the religious elite as being lightweight and not theologically significant enough. Conversions were questioned whether people's lives were genuinely being turned around. In the 1904 revival in Wales, Evan Roberts, it was criticized by the religious elite. Why? Because they sang too much and preached too little. And yet here was a revival where pit donkeys who had been used to their owners swearing at them in Welsh all the time found themselves stopping and unable to respond to their converted master's commands because they'd stopped swearing at them. <laughs> the Hebridean revival saw police stations close, saw crime drop, saw alcoholism drop markedly in the Western Isles of Scotland, yet it was criticized by church leaders because it was perceived to be sectarian. It was perceived to be only happening in one part of the church. The early Pentecostals were criticized because we were um, told that we were um, intellectually lightweight, that we were being divisive. One man in the church that I led in Springbourne in Bournemouth told me the story of being a salvationist and living in a lovely little cottage with his mom and his dad and um, several brothers and sisters. And his father went to a meeting led by a man called George Jeffries that founded the Elam movement. And whilst there, his father was filled with the Holy Spirit. He came home and he spoke to the officers in the Salvation Army. They had five children. The following morning, they were turfed out onto the street with nowhere to live and nowhere to go. But before those of us that are Pentecostal think, yes, we've always been hard done by. Let me remind you that in the early 60s and 70s and still to this day, in some parts of the world, Pentecostals are the first in line to criticize charismatics. 
Don't teach your granny how to suck eggs. We receive the Holy Spirit first. We do exactly the same thing as the church has always done. When God is on the move, religious people don't like it. That's what happens when you put yourself in the position of being the guardian of God. When you assume that it's your job to guard God, you have to have a mechanism for guarding him. But in the words of C.S. Lewis, I would suggest that God is more than capable of guarding himself. We just need to let the lion loose. Here are 10 traits of controlling leaders. 10 traits of religious men and women who try to control what God is doing by the power of the Holy Spirit. Number one, their perception is more important than anybody else's because they consider themselves to be the only ones that are right. You can't talk to religious people like that because they just won't listen. You're wrong and they're right. Number two, they fear change instead of welcoming it. I'm going to give you a little lesson. Remember this, Dundonald, those of you that are part of our church family, remember what I'm about to say to you for the rest of your time in your interactions with me. This church and every other church, if I was doing this as a consultancy day in other churches, I would get you all involved, but to be honest, it's too hot and none of you will move. (laughs) There are four groups of people in every church. Write it down if you're taking notes. If you're a leader of a ministry, these people are in your church. If you're at work, they're there. Whatever social context you're in, you're going to find them. First of all, you have um, the traditionalists. Then you have the conservatives. Then you have the progressives. And then you have the radicals. I'll do it again. Traditionalists. Conservatives, progressives, radicals. Every church has them. Every community has them. Every business has them. Here's the problem. Radicals want everything to change every week. They're the people that say, why are we singing, um, you're a good, good father? It's far too old. We should be singing something new. If the song hasn't still got the ink wet on the paper, it's not worth singing. They're the people that say, Andy, why can't we just get rid of all the chairs and every time leave them at a pile at the door so that when people come in, they have to pick up a chair and decide where they're going to sit? Or, or why have chairs at all? Make people sit on the floor. You get more people in if you can just sit in the floor. Give them a blanket or give them a pillow. And why do we have a preacher? Tell them to shut up because we've been preaching for 2,000 years. Let's have a 30-minute, a 30-second snippet. That's what we'll do. Radicals like everything to change all the time. Anybody a radical? Don't put your hand up. (laughs) There will be radicals in this room. They can tolerate progressives, but they're not overly keen. Progressives like things to change, but they like it to change fast enough that everybody can come with them. So they don't mind songs that are maybe uh, 10, 15, 20, 25, 35, 45, 50 years ago, but if if it starts with a 1-8 when it was written, then you shouldn't sing it. They, radicals think that the organ is a Latin word for demonic. 
Progressives don't think it's demonic, but they definitely don't think it's of God. Then you have conservatives. Conservatives like change. But very slowly. They're like the ants in the Lord of the Rings. They would take six or seven months to decide whether you could change anything. But they like change. They don't mind it. They're not afraid of it. They're just a bit wary of it. They don't want anything to change. Well, they don't mind it changing so long as it can change in a way that they can cope with. So long as they're in control of the change. And they can put up with progressives. But they think radicals are bonkers. And they can also put up with traditionalists. Because they can see themselves in the traditionalists. The traditionalist is just like an extreme version of them. A traditionalist thinks that if anything ever changes, Satan has taken over the church. (laughs) They would say, the worst thing Dundonald ever did was leave Grand Prix Park. (laughs) We used to meet God in Grand Prix Park. Those pews, taking away the pews, you take away the liberty of the Holy Spirit. Every song should be at least 400 years old. Nobody should read anything except the King James Version of the Bible. Nothing is allowed to change ever. Do you know the difference between tradition and traditionalism? Tradition is healthy. Tradition is a deep respect for the living faith of the past. Traditionalism is dead faith in the past. Now here's the problem. In this church family, there will be a good balance of um, traditionalists, conservatives, progressives, and radicals. My job is to keep you together. (laughs) Here's what most pastors do. Plonk themselves right in the middle. And they jump from being between progressives and conservatives. Progressives and conservatives. Progressives and conservatives. By doing so, they alienate the 25% that are radicals and they alienate the 25% that are traditionalists. So they can never take more than half of the church away uh, on, on the journey with them. So what did Jesus do? Jesus was a radical traditionalist. He encompassed both ends. How do I know that? Because he stood here as the radical and he said, new wine needs new wine skins. End of. If you want me to do something, you're going to have to make room for me to do it. No discussion, no debate, live with it. He was much gentler than me. And he also stood and said this, I tell you, not one jot or tittle of the law will be done away with. Because I have come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. A healthy church is radically Traditionalist. You know what that looks like in Donald? Until the day I die or the Lord calls me away from here, you're going to be stuck with this. We will be shaped by scripture. We will never abandon preaching as long as I am the lead pastor here. But we will also not become this community that is stuck in one moment somewhere in our 50-year history. 
We must be radical enough to pursue what God wants, radical enough to take risks, radical enough to step out in faith and believe that the Spirit of God is still at work, radical enough to embrace brothers and sisters in Christ, whatever label they have, radical enough to release people into ministry because of their gift, not because of their gender, radical enough to stand for all that God wants, radical enough to push into new territory, but traditional enough to stay rooted in scripture, rooted in worship, rooted in the Trinity, rooted in mission, rooted in discipleship, rooted in relationship, and absolutely committed not to falling out. (laughs) We need to welcome change instead of fearing it. But we need to make sure that we're not pushing change at a rate that we want. We need to listen to the Holy Spirit. We need to be guided by him. We need to be rooted in not being God's guardians. We need to have open, honest, respectful conversations about things like women in ministry. Because there are many of you here that will have a different position to me on that. And I can't, I can't in my heart tell you that you're utterly wrong. We have to learn to listen to each other, to respect one another, to talk properly. Leadership fails when a leader thinks that they can go and do what they want and the church just has to keep up. That's not good leadership. That's a dereliction of responsibility. It's failing the hard work of listening and talking. Thirdly, we adopt a posture of guardianship rather than pioneering. When guarding what you've got becomes more important than pressing into what you could have, there's something gone wrong, don't you think? If you don't think that, then just... Fast forward 60 years with nothing having changed in our church, we never having reached anybody, and there'll be nobody here. Well, there might be a handful. Kyle, you might be here. Campbell, you'll definitely not be here. (laughs) Pastor Eric, you'll be well and truly in heaven in 60 years, brother. If we only ever guard what we've got, how are we ever going to break into new territory? When you become a guardian of something, It's because you're afraid of pressing in to something new and that's because you are more secure with what you've got than excited about what could be. Don't become like that. Fourthly, I hope you're enjoying this, I'm loving it. (laughs) Fourthly, when people position themselves to be criticizers and, and guardians of God, they use manipulation and control and fear to get what they want. A pulpit should never be a place for manipulation, never be a place for control, never be a place for fear. No public leader should lead out of fear. No pastor should lead out of fear. No preacher should preach out of fear. No elder should lead out of fear. No managing director should manage out of fear. The problem with politics in the United Kingdom and in Northern Ireland and in Europe is that for 30 years we've been leading out of fear and nobody has said anything about it. That's why we end up in the mess that we are. Caricature the other. Make them look like they're some kind of demonic representation of everything that you don't like. And you'll get votes and you'll get money. But you are destroying the fabric of a society. And for those preachers and those politicians, and there are politicians that watch these services week in and week out, I have one simple message for you if you're a Christian. In the name of Jesus, stop leading us out of fear and start leading us out of confidence and hope. Fifthly, Told you I was enjoying it. (laughs) 
Conforming becomes more important than conviction. Fitting in becomes more important than doing what God's asked you to do. Can't raise my hand. Can't kneel. Why? Because somebody might say something about me. Somebody might criticize me. Can't dance. Why? Because I'm a middle-aged man and I'm too fat. (laughs) Or is it because you're afraid people will laugh at you? I wonder what you'd have done if you were King David leading the ark back into Jerusalem. Sixthly, the spirit is seen as our servant rather than our leader. When churches are led by people that are afraid of change or communities or businesses that are Christian are led by people that are afraid of change, they begin to define what the spirit does in ways that they're comfortable with. He wouldn't ever contradict me. Seventhly, anybody that questions you and critiques you is rejected as a threat. You're not allowed to ask me questions. You're not allowed to challenge me. You're not allowed to say that you don't agree with that. That's a really unhealthy church. It's a really unhealthy business. It's a really unhealthy family. When the leader of the family says, you never question me. Compare that to Jesus who was questioned all the time. Eighthly, we command the people instead of inviting. I don't know if you've ever noticed this about me. You probably haven't. But week in and week out since I came to Donald, I say something at the beginning of the service. Not only this is the inspired and infallible word of God. I know you've all noticed that. I say thank you for coming. I know there's a lot of other places that you could have been and a lot of other things that you could have been doing. Thanks for investing in being here. Because this is an invitational community. It's not a commanded one. It's not my job to command you. It's God's job to command you. It's my job to help you understand the scriptures. And sometimes it's my job to say, look, if you do that, then these are the consequences of your choice. But the choice is ultimately yours. If you want to be a leader in our church, you're not going to be able to be doing all kinds of things. If you want to get to the center of what God is doing here, I have an expectation of your behavior. No apology for that. I have an expectation of your giving. No apology for that either. I have an expectation of your values, of the way you read the Bible. If you've been part of our church family for a while and you've come from another church family, I'm glad that you're here, but don't think that I won't have a conversation with your previous pastor. If you were part of this church and left when it split and came back, If you said horrible things to people, you're going to need to put them right before you can integrate into the life of the fellowship. If you don't, you can't. Fall out with me if you like. I really don't care. Because it's my job to guard this flock. And it's my job to make sure that the way we live is in accordance with Scripture. And that we live with the consequences of our choices and our actions. Because I have to make this community as safe as it can be for those that are part of it. And I have no apology for that. That's what Jesus would do. The challenge for us is so often, we don't like the idea of authority, but we want the idea of freedom. But when freedom ends up touching us and hurting us and breaking us, we're not so keen on it. Ninthly, when we are guardians of God, our role is defined by fear and protectionism rather than by faith. And lastly, spontaneity dies. 
I don't want to be part of a church where spontaneity has died. I want to be part of a church where spontaneity is growing, don't you? Where we are learning to flow in the things of God. My second point. (laughs) That is genuinely my second point. (laughs) Is that God will intervene miraculously to do whatever he deems to be right for the advancement of his kingdom when we are facing opposition. You'll be glad to know that it get quicker. In verse 19, there is this angel incident. Peter and the apostles are thrown into jail and an angel, the Greek word for angel is angelos. It means messenger. I presume it was an angelic being, a heavenly being, but it may not have been. Uh, Comes and lets them out. The reason I think it's an angelic being is because when they go to check to bring them out to question them, the, the doors are still locked, the guards are still there and the prisoners are standing in the temple preaching and teaching. I think an ordinary person would have had trouble with some of that. But God intervenes here, and there's a bigger point that I really need to make, if you can bear with me for a few moments. The angel incident shows that God will intervene miraculously to do whatever he deems right for the advancement of his kingdom in that moment. There is a deliverance here, and the angel says, go back to the temple and preach again. So that's exactly what they do in verse 19. In verses 22 to 25, when the soldiers and the prison guards, the temple police in effect come, the prison is empty, the prison is locked securely, verse 23 tells us that. The guards are still on duty. And there's a real irony in verse 25 because the temple guard says to the high priest, look, the men you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. It's this kind of picture of you put them there, but somebody else put them there. Something's happened here. But what about Acts chapter 12? Where we are told that James dies. As the leader of the Jerusalem church, killed by Herod, and Peter is delivered. What about 326 AD, the first council of Nicaea, when they were arguing about whether Jesus was fully human and fully divine? And 80% of those that went had lost a leg, an arm, an eye, or sustained life-threatening injury because of standing for the gospel. What about Olawule Elisanmi at Southgate? Why was he arrested? Getting controversial now. What about Jim McConnell? Standing in court, accused of something that was a ridiculous charge. What about Daniel and Amy MacArthur dragged into the highest court in the United Kingdom because of the way they were behaving around the selling of a cake? Why didn't God intervene and stop all of those things? Because he doesn't always stop them. That's why. Because he will do whatever will advance his kingdom most. And sometimes that's what you want and sometimes it's what you don't want. But when we get to the place where what we want is the advancement of his kingdom above anything that gives us comfort and peace, we're in the best place. In the words of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or as you've heard me call them before, shake the bed, make the bed, and in the bed you go. (laughs) Whether you deliver us from the fire or not, we will not stop serving our God. So maybe you've seen God's miraculous intervention. Praise the Lord. 
Maybe you've seen a miraculously heal. We've seen miraculous healings in the last few weeks here. We have also seen no miraculous healing in Joel. We've seen no miraculous healing in Susan Miles. We've seen no miraculous healing in other people. Does that mean that God is, likes one more than the other? No, it means that there's a mystery about what he does and we have to learn to live with it. And we trust him. We trust that he is good and his love endures forever and we bring our questions and our yearnings and our anxieties. And for those of you that are interested, I'm still praying for miraculous intervention in them all. Nor am I going to stop. God will intervene miraculously to do whatever he deems to be right for the kingdom of God and he will protect his people and he will expose his people and he will let his people face exile and he'll let his people face the losing of power. He'll also stand with us and he'll never abandon us. I'm going to say something to you that I've said once or twice before, but I think it's important to say it again today. Um, as a church begins to grow, you end up with lots of people asking lots of conversations. How long will he stay? What's he going to do? Is Malcolm going to walk off and leave us? I'm here because God wants me here. And I'm not going anywhere. God is about something in Dundonald Elam Church. He is changing lives and changing hearts And there is nowhere on planet earth that I would rather be. And there's no other ministry I would rather be fulfilling than here at this time for this season to pursue what God wants. And as long as we're able to walk that together, we're all right. Thirdly, in verses 27 to 33, when a church is facing opposition, there's a very simple answer. We do what God wants rather than what people tell us. You'll be glad to know that's the end of that point. Peter says to the high priest when he says, you can't do this anymore. No. God told me to preach, so I'm going to preach. Throw me in jail if you like, but I'm going to preach because I'd rather obey God than you. Do you know what the hardest space can be to say that in? A church It's relatively straightforward to say to society, I have to do what God has asked me to do. It's harder to say it to a group of people who you love and lead. But we must follow what God wants, even if it makes us uncomfortable. Fourthly, when we face opposition, we need to learn to look for a Gamaliel. In this story, they're about to kill the apostles And Gamaliel rises and says, hold on a minute, just stop and wait. If what these people are doing is of God, it will last. And if it isn't, it won't. Don't intervene. Great principle, folks. No need to take to Facebook to pull apart things. No need to plaster your opposition and your anger all over social media. No need to work your way around a congregation saying, did you hear about them? We've got to get rid of them. We've got to get rid of them. If God is in something, he's in it. And if he's not in it, he's not in it. And time will tell. Stand back and let God do the vindication. Let God do the work. I need to say something here, which will feel like I'm going backwards, but I'm not. And I want you to understand it. And it's, it's slightly more detail than I would normally go into, probably more than I've ever gone into here in our church family. Two years ago, 
on May the 12th. Well, first of all, let me say that on May the 12th, I will have been here one year. That wasn't that encouraging, but never mind. I will have been here one year. You have a month to practice that, all right? But on May the 12th, two years ago, this church split. I've listened to recordings of that meeting. I have talked to people that were present. I've gone through the conversation. For those of you that are new to Donald, just let this help you understand a little bit of the story of this church. I listened to people shouting and saying to others, burn in hell. I listened to things being said that should never be said from a pulpit, that should never be shouted from a congregation. And it's recent history for our church family. It's very recent history. Then I watched on Facebook as things were said and I've followed some of the threads. And I wanna say something without going into all of that other than to say this, everybody made mistakes in that period. Everybody, everybody. And our church leadership, the first thing they said to me when I talked about coming here was, we made mistakes in this. We got things wrong. But I want to tell you something, folks, those of you that are part of this church family, they also made a simple decision. And that was that they were not going to write anything on Facebook or write anything in public that was going to destroy the new church that had emerged. And they never have. They know a fuller story than you know, and I know the fuller story. And I wanna say to you that that has not been an easy journey for them, and time doesn't always eradicate the pain. So as we stand here, about to go into the second year of my ministry, I want to say to you something that I'm gonna, I thought long and hard about this. I'm not bringing this up again. This is the last time you're going to hear me talking about this in any detail. But I want to say to you that the team that have led this church, one man um, said to me not so long ago, the team that led the church through that period are being told, I'm being told that they rescued us when they destroyed us. They didn't, they rescued you. They weren't perfect but they took the hit for you. They took some of the stuff that you could have got for you. That's what a good leader does. And as we move into a new season, I am excited about it. I'm I'm optimistic about it. I'm thrilled about it. I'm full of faith about it. I'm full of energy about it. I'm full of expectation about it. I'm not gonna go backwards. I'm not going to look forward or look, look into some kind of story that happened 20 or 30 or 40 years ago. And I I wanna say to you this morning, I recognize that for some of you, that might not be enough. You might say, no, we, we, we need a change of leadership. We need a change of this. We need a change of that before we can move forward. At the annual general meeting on the 17th of April, I'm going to bring before you as a church family, my request to this team to stay in post for a year because I need them. And I believe God has brought them and that he's used them. And I wanna honor them for their ministry. I'm not saying that they were perfect, but I'm I'm saying to you, if you knew the fuller story of some of the things that were said and done through what was the most difficult year this church has ever faced, you would discover that they took a hit rather than let you take it. That's what good leaders do. 
And they are standing, no, don't do that, it's okay. Thank you for your, whoever was gonna do that, it was wonderful. Diane, thank you so much, it wasn't a rebuke. I'll buy you a coffee later. <laughs> but they, like us, are saying, leave it with God. Leave it with God. Leave the whole story with God. And brothers and sisters, if you can't leave the story with God, then you need to work out how you're going to move on because we are leaving this with God, amen? We're leaving it with God. That's it. It is done and dusted and we're leaving it with the Lord because look at what he's doing. For those of you that want a slight encouragement, I wasn't going to share these figures, but I've gone slightly off my text this morning, but I think it's right. In the last 12 months, since May the, 7, May the 12th last year, we have seen 577 people either become Christians or recommit their lives to Christ through the ministry here at Dundonald Leadham Church. I think that's moving on. I think we can, with a certain level of confidence, say that God is moving. So we look into all that lies ahead with joy and optimism and hopefulness. And lastly, in this passage in verse 41, we note that we can rejoice in what we endure for Christ. The apostles leave Jerusalem, counting themselves blessed because they've been allowed to suffer for Jesus. They walk back into the streets and they continue to preach and teach. They continue to talk. They continue to share. They continue to live. They continue to open their hearts. They continue to be all that God wants them to be because they've discovered that in this opposition, they can get stronger. When everybody's against them, they somehow find each other. We're not facing massive opposition here in Dundonald. We're facing great blessing. But as we stand together, as we move into all that God has for us, as we remain open to the Holy Spirit, as we allow him to move amongst us, if the last year has been exciting, what could the next couple of years look like? I would say hold on to your hat, but not many of you are wearing one. Because God is at work in our congregation. God is at work in this church. And I honestly do not think that perhaps we understand what a privilege it is to be part of that. I think we can take it for granted. So let's guard what God is doing, but not guard, guard God. Let's put our arms around each other and not defend God, but defend his work here and let him do something in us, which is remarkable. And all of this is lodged in exactly the same place as we're lodged in every Sunday morning. Because what Peter and the apostles say to the leaders of the Sanhedrin fundamentally boils down to this. We will obey what God wants because it was God who sent his son to die for us, not you. It's only God's son that gives us the grace to stand here.